Chicago. This is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Josh Cantro, Roberto Montano, Salim Uakil, Doug Truax, and Carl Friedhoff. Our program tonight coming to you from our own base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289, 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo at D-U-M-O. If you want to watch or listen to the broadcast, it's on beyondthebeltway.com live. And if you miss it, it's there all the time, so you'll never miss tonight's show. And also starting tonight, we're adding a new uh, point, and that is our new fixture, and that is you'll be able to watch the show live on our Facebook page. This is the Beyond the Beltway Facebook page, not my personal Facebook page, but the Beyond the Beltway Facebook page. If you've not joined, join us tonight, and you'll be able to watch uh, both hours of the broadcast uh, each and every Sunday night, wherever you are in the world, uh, if you're a Facebook facer. Facebook. Now, has anybody given up their Facebook account because of the recent controversy? No, everybody's, no. No, nobody around this table is taking part of that. Just uh, more in, suspicious. Part of that uh, protest. Hmm. Um, it's, been an, it's been another... F- Tremendous week, and and the actions of the president, insofar as his foreign policy and reaching out to France and Germany, dominated much of the week. Uh, however, it was upstaged later in the week when the leaders of North and South Korea got together and decided uh, to begin the process of making peace with each other. Dramatic. We will be talking about that in the second a segment of our broadcast this evening, or second half hour this evening. And we'll be talking about what it all means for the upcoming trip uh, and visit uh, the summit uh, with the Korean leaders uh, and also the President of the United States. But I want to begin uh, this evening with the, the, the visit of... Uh, uh, France's uh, president, uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, and uh, Doug Truex, you're our card, one of our card-carrying Republicans tonight. What was your reaction of the, the pomp and circumstance and the way we treated the, the French um, ally and uh, the way we treated Germany? Uh, well, I think that uh, Macron's got, uh, for, for, to credit to him, I think he's got a lot of Trump figured out. I think that uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, angst we see coming out of Trump sometimes is because he gets a lot of uh, uh, sarcasm coming his way, a lot of uh, world leaders maybe not taking him seriously. Uh, Macron, he stated his case. You know, he doesn't agree with a lot of things, um, but uh, he was still very respectful of Trump, and uh, I think that, uh, that shows in the way Trump handles him as well. And I think uh, uh, Merkel's got her hands full because she's a weaker president, a weaker leader over there. And I think Macron's on the rise, and she's on she's on the downswing right now. Roberto Montano is one of our Democrats tonight. Roberto, um, what do you think of the way in which the United States president and the French president uh, uh, dealt with each other this week? Because it's generally perceived, maybe over the last 40 years, that whoever is the leader of France is sort of looking down their nose at the president of the United States. Maybe not the last four years, but... <laughs> certainly much of the last 20 years they have. Well, if they understand their constituencies, they are, because a lot of the French people feel that way. Uh, but I think that uh, Macron, to his credit, did a great job of advancing the ideas of multilateralism, uh, promoting trade, the environment, and those core issues that uh, a lot of people in the EU, uh, and a lot of people, in, frankly, in the U.S. also 
want to be advanced. He did a good job of, of voicing those. Josh Cantrell is our other Republican tonight. Josh, what's your reaction of the, the, the dynamic between those three leaders? Well, I, I think with Macron, I agree with Doug that he's got Trump largely f figured out. And I think that the fact that he gave Trump such a nice state visit a few months ago when Trump was over there uh, or, or earlier in Trump's term, Trump wanted to repay the favor. With Merkel, it's a completely different situation. Uh, she has not figured out Trump. She, she, th there clearly is a frosty relationship between those two. And uh, on the ultimate question, both of these leaders were over there to try to convince Trump to stay in the Iran deal. I don't think they're going to succeed. Salim Ulkil also joins us, one of our progressives. Salim, nice to have you with us from uh, In These Times. Uh, my question to you is, uh, is uh, Emmanuel Macron and Donald Trump, are they uh, very much alike in some ways? Well, I, quite frankly, I was a bit embarrassed by the bromantic aspect of their too much hand-holding for oh, you. Oh, man. Goodness. It wasn't well, hand-wringing. It was hand-holding. I hand thought they holding. were getting ready to lay down on the... <laughs> you know, that, that was embarrassing. But, but I was, I was um, impressed by Macron's dedication to the Atlanticist alliance. And he, I think, stressed that. Uh, a lot of people in Europe are very, very um, anxious about Trump's uh, loyalties. Where, where do but, they lie? You but, know? The, but the fact that they were, they were each outsiders, no mm. one predicted that they would win... Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're all they're somewhat mavericks. I mean, is that the similarity? Well, there is there is a little bit of that, but I, but I think uh, in, in, in temperament they are completely different. I think Macron has to appeal to, to Trump because in his population there's a lot of Trumpian uh, sentiment being expressed with, with his opposition to, to immigration and, and, and Islamization. So so he has to he has to be you know um, uh, accommodating to, to that point of view. Doug, you know, one other observation I had watching it on television was that it was almost like watching a father and, and one of Trump's sons. I mean, because of the age difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's yeah. what, younger than one of the sons, right? Mm. So um, did, did, did that come across to you? Almost I get a, what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, the way he would hug him all the time. And, you know. <clears throat> right. Well, I, and the part of Macron, I, I think he recognizes that, um, you know, when Trump keeps talking about America first... He doesn't. He's not excluding. He's not excluding anybody else. He's just not in for globalism. And Macron, and I guess the other European leaders need to come to the realization that they need us more than we need them, and they're going to have to come Trump's way, which is what you're starting to see now. How 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 important was it that this visit, which had been planned in advance, uh, happened at the same time that that France and and uh, Great Britain were helping uh, the U.S. in their Syrian strikes? I, th I think it, it, it was important, and I think the symbolism and timing uh, was not coincidental. I think Trump wants to – his view is, is this. America is shouldering too much of a burden. And the fact that France and Britain helped us in those strikes uh, was a big deal. And in addition to the fact that, you know, Macron had given him a very nice visit earlier, he wanted to reciprocate. What's interesting to me, though, is – the last part of uh, Macron's visit when he uh, went to the uh, joint session of Congress and he sort of uh, rebuked uh, everything that Trump stands for. Mm. And I, I can't imagine with a smile, with a smile, smile tactful, and a dagger, <laughs> but uh, I can't imagine that uh, Trump was too happy about that. Right. Roberto, he couldn't, have, he, he couldn't have been surprised by that. Though. I think uh, Macron is smart enough to know that we have elections coming up. And he's trying to speak to the American people through the 
to the joint session of Congress and sort of assure Americans, hey, we understand that you've got some issues right now. We don't agree on everything, but we had your back in Syria, and we have your back on big issues like what we think we agree on, which is the environment. Um, trade is super important. That's why you see us trying to go back to TPP. You see us going back to NAFTA. And so at the end of the day, the message that Macron was advancing, multilateralism, I think is being advanced. Yeah. Okay. 1-800-723-8209. Your reaction on the uh, the foreign policy initiatives of the president uh, last week, uh, welcoming uh, the leader of France and Germany of the United States. And also as the program progresses this evening, we will be talking a lot about what happened in uh, Korea and big changes coming up there. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Dumont back. Uh, Question to Josh. Uh, When the president is talking foreign policy or when he's in other countries, is in your view, is is that when he looks and comes across more presidential than in in the other things that he normally does, like popping up on shows or rallies like he had in Michigan last night? Well, certainly. I mean, the the popping up on Fox and Friends in the morning, uh, a few days ago was not his most presidential moment no um at at all and i was it was just it was bizarre it was disappointing but i think back to say his speech in saudi arabia which i thought was just an excellent speech and it really laid out his vision of foreign policy Uh, i thought he was incredibly presidential during that speech and the contrast to that in fox and friends or the campaign rally last night is striking Salim, it's been a while since you've been on the show, but mm-hmm. um, with all the fear that you had about Donald Trump in advance, mm-hmm. although for those who were not or have not been regular listeners, uh, you alerted us during the campaign that Donald Trump was connecting to many of the African-American leaders that listened to your radio show on WBON, and you were quite re- uh, revealing in, in your uh, comments that they made, more mm-hmm. positive. Um, one of the other big things that happened last week is obviously the involvement with, with, with Kanye West mm-hmm. and the, the bromance between he and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. How real is it and how significant is it for those that may not you know, know every you know, song that Kanye West has ever <laughs> performed, uh, like myself? I mean, mm-hmm. why is that important and how politically significant is it in your view? Well, you know, Traditionally, um, the, the pop uh, hierarchy have, have been left-leaning. And, and so whenever, whenever one, one member of that hierarchy turns right, so to speak, um, that, that's big news. and The right embraces that. Um, and, and, and Kanye is a pretty significant figure in, in the pop universe. And so, you know, that's, that's an important thing. And, and Trump has always had a, a pretty good reputation among um, among rappers, hip hoppers, they like the big baller aspect, you know, yeah. the the, uh, the alpha dog kind of quality that Trump exhibits. They they've always been attracted to that, and so I think that's a part of it as well. What impact, if any, does it have on politics in November of this year or in 2020 politics? Is it? it will it be measurable that that uh, there may be a larger uh, black support for President Trump? I mean, people don't perhaps remember, is that Donald Trump got 8% of the black vote 
uh, and that was that was that was twice as much as as Romney had received. Thirteen thirteen percent of, the, of yeah. the black male vote, right. as a matter of fact. So, so what's going on there? I mean, is well, this, is, are they are they leaving the Democratic Party? Is, is it Is it just the personality of Donald Trump? What's causing it? The the in the aftermath of Barack Obama. A lot of uh, black Democrats are beginning to ask, what have the Democrats been doing for us? What have we gained from our association with the Democrats? And they're beginning to look at them more skept- with more skepticism and a lot more, um, you know, a, lot, a, a much more critical eye. And so I think that that's a part of the process that we see happening right now. It all depends on who, do, who, do, who the uh, Democrats run for office. Uh, that, that, will, that will determine how much, I think, how much support Trump gets. Would you say at this moment in time that I'm, I'm going to make, make two statements and I'm going to get your reaction. Had Hillary Clinton picked, had, had she picked Cory Booker to be the running mate, she would have elected, she would have been elected. You agree with that? Mm. Uh, that's likely, yes. I okay. think it would have. I think it would have. Uh, and that, in, in looking yeah. at the lack of black enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton, um, that it almost dictates to the Democratic Party that in 2020 and in the foreseeable future, there had better be a black or a minority somewhere on the national Democratic. Absolutely ticket. right. Absolutely, man. I mean, what are the what? What is the Democratic Party without the black electorate? What is Roberto, it? what do you think of that? I think the Democratic that's, that's an absolute. I, I think the Democratic Party is hearing that message loud and clear. You have real practical solutions being put together uh, at the grassroots. The Cook County Young Democrats, for example, just had a uh, event with the with the DCCC, where they took a lot of young people from Northern Illinois and say, "Hey, what do we need to do?" How are we representing you? And it comes up with infrastructure, hiring the right people, and making sure that they know how to how to voice the, the, the concerns because no one knows everybody or everything. But by opening the tent, we're, gonna, we're doing a better job now. Doug, uh, you ran for the United States Senate as a Republican in a primary. You did not make it, but maybe you'll Close. try again someday. Close. My question to you is uh, if the Democrats seem to know who their base is and, and how they're trying to work on that base, how do the Republicans react to that? What, what, what do they do to expand the base they have? Or uh, are there things they can do to steal a few votes away from the Democrats? Well, I think we're watching I don't it. mean literally. <laughs> well, I think we're watching it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're in Chicago. I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we're watching it right now with the Kanye thing. That's what's happening. Is I, and I, I really firmly believe that the Democrats totally overplayed the tax cuts is going to be a problem for you, <clears throat> don't believe it, it's going to be horrible. And I think as we go forward, more and more people are saying, wait a minute, I'm making more money, the economy is good. Um, what were they talking about again? And I think that is where, you know, the, the, the Democrats, and, I, and I, we need a healthy two-party system, but the Democrat, the, the, the fatal flaw in the left, and i got to give credit to Jordan Peterson for, I was, I was uh, watching him talk about this, is that <clears throat> they have no limit to where they will go. And it's making the people in the middle uncomfortable. Conservatives have limits on, hey, we're, you know, uh, if anybody's, uh, you know, KKK or whatever, we're not. But people, there are certain things that are off limits. But the left has got themselves oh, in a place oh, where, oh, 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 oh. where it, oh, oh, good me, people me, on both sides. Remember that? Yeah, but no, but this is but what's happening now when we talk about all the different things that the left is doing in terms of. And I think you kind of alluded to it just a second ago, equality of uh, outcome. 
instead of equality of opportunity, those types of things where, where this is going on the left, it's going to make a real problem for the moderates in, in the future. And I think it, I, frankly, it bodes well for the Republicans if, they don't, if the left doesn't, uh, Democrats don't get their act together. Josh? I think if the Republicans run on the economy, they're going to do just fine. As Bill Clinton said in 92, it's the economy stupid, and that's, got, that's what got propelled that campaign into the White House. Look at the job figures, African-American unemployment at all-time low, Latino unemployment at an all-time low. I mean, if that continues, I, I, I'm hopeful that the Republicans that m- will attract more minority support. Are they, uh, for the people that are calling your show, uh, Salim, are they reacting uh – to the, the uh, it's almost every third utterance out of the president's mouth is to quote the statistics about uh, the lowest black employment uh, unemployment ever. I mm-hmm. mean, is that resonating with with people who listen to you and people that you it interface is, it with? Is. It is resonating, but but they uh, immediately um, add that in, in Illinois that's not the case. In Illinois, black employment is still very, very high, and and of course they point to the Democrats. In, in that case. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it is having an effect. People are beginning to say, well, you know, um, if, uh, if we're working, then w- w- what is so bad about Trump? What is so bad about him? That's what and, people and are asking. Do you have an answer for them, uh, Roberto? I you're would Hispanic. You're di- different. Yeah, well, group, but I I'm mean, just saying is that what, what are Hispanic businessmen? I mean, obviously, you're in sure, the real estate business. Sure. You're dealing with with successful or, or business entrepreneurial, sure, a types. lot of commercial. What yeah. are they saying about Donald Trump and these? The the, the 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 is it all about the wall or are they going beyond the wall for their concerns about Donald? Trump? In the Hispanic community, and not that I speak for all Hispanics, but the ones that I do know well, uh, you know, we we care very much about not just immigration, although that's super important to us, but we care about the economy, we care about public safety, we care about infrastructure, education. But I think that where the Republicans respectfully drop the ball a little bit is look at policies like Bruce Rauner. The first thing he does is he cuts it's the governor of Illinois. Governor, he cuts higher education funding by 31.5%, and that just cuts the knees off of the African-American community. Chicago State University shutting down. Mm-hmm. Southern shutting down. So when we talk about, you know, it's, it's, it's butter and bullets right now, right? We're talking about as Democrats, we want to invest in human capital, education, health care. And our Republican al- uh, colleagues, I guess I'll say it that way, don't look at that. They look at tax cuts. What does the, again, g- given the fact that, uh, you know, the, the African-American community or the communities of America, sure. uh, Hispanic community, very strong, the gay community, uh, the Jewish community still to a large extent, uh, majority of women, not all women. Super but, important, okay. all of those, yeah. You, 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 you have a core foundation of constituency that is looks on paper far more str- strong than what the Republicans have. Well, the Republicans have a solid base, too. I mean, most, and I'm just, just factually, um, non-college-educated white males are sticking to Trump. He's got a 22%, like, he just cannot go below right. that. And, and we have to do something for them, right? They're, they're falling victim to the opioid crisis. They're falling victim to not being able to compete in a multilateral uh, you know, diverse economy, and so we, we their lifespan is, is shrinking. They're dying, right? So our 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 poor white brothers and sisters in this country are dying. Now, now that being said, <laughs> Puerto Rico, and and what are we doing for for inner cities still, right? Like we as Democrats, we like to think anyway, and I I really do believe that we care about the entire group, right? We try to put 
you know, Trump says America first. We, 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 well, we, some would argue you don't care about taxpayers. We you, care you, very you, much. You, you care about everybody who's got a problem. You don't care about anybody that has a job or works. Except, except we have a trillion-dollar deficit now because of the Ryan budget. And, and we, we're not looking at trying to fix that hole by cutting back on Medicare and Medicaid. That's not what Trump ran on. Doug, well, I think that um, 30 seconds. OK, so um, you look at any uh, major Democrat run city in this country, you start with San Francisco, uh, policy matters. And too much Democrat policy turns into the things we see there where you see a larger divide between rich and poor, middle class moves out and uh, it turns into a disaster. And I think the people in the middle are watching that thinking, I don't want that for the future of the country. When we come back, 1-800-723-8289, should you want to weigh in on our conversation this evening. And when we come back, again, we're going to spend a little more time talking about Korea. North and South, together again? Perhaps. Don't go away. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. And again, uh, in the first half hour, we were talking about the images that came out of Washington, D.C. with the President of the United States and the President of France and uh, the uh, President of uh, Germany, uh, referring to them as Angela uh, and uh, Emmanuel. I kept calling him Emmanuel, which I thought on a first-name basis with some of these leaders. <laughs> Uh, however, as the focus of, the, of uh, at least the United States uh, media was on what was happening in Washington, D.C., uh, around the world, uh, two other leaders were making their news, and basically the, the big pictures of the week uh, were not out of Washington. They were out of uh, Korea. And uh, you had the leader of North Korea and the leader of South Korea uh, meeting at the DMZ, and uh, those the video went around the world. And uh, there was a press conference involving them all. And uh, then there was the historic shaking of the hands right at the DMZ. And then uh, uh, Kim Jong-un stepping into South Korea and then taking the hand of President Moon and bringing him back to North Korea. And again, it was, it was quite a remarkable uh, video and images and the gentlemen signing, uh, you know, treaties and hugging each other. I mean, it was, it was a bromance and then a press conference like uh, was happening in Washington, D.C., so this was, uh, to many people listening to this program, this was, these were pictures that nobody ever thought they would have. Certainly six months ago on this program and around the country, everyone was talking about the possibility of nuclear war uh, with, with uh, North Korea, and things have just changed dramatically. Carl Friedhoff joins us. Uh, Carl, nice to have you with us. You're an expert in the uh, Korean political s- situation. And you were one of those who uh, six months ago was saying there, there wasn't much, uh, at least from a military standpoint, that could be done. But are you somewhat shocked not only at what happened with uh, the two leaders, but uh, the speed with which this happened? 
Yeah, I think that's right. It's not really about what has happened, but just the speed. I think when, when Moon Jae-in was coming in as, as president of South Korea, we had a good indication that he was going to, to try to engage North Korea in whichever way he could. Of course, past South Korean administrations have done largely the same, but they've not had a, a willing North Korea partner. But now with a willing North Korea partner, a uh, North Korea that seems to be comfortable and confident in its nuclear weapons program and its delivery systems, it is now decided that it is the right time to engage South Korea. And, and then eventually it's going to try to move on and do something with the United States. Now, one of the questions that has been asked frequently is, would any of this have happened without the, the, the very strong, aggressive behavior and rhetoric of President Trump? Did he did he scare anybody to uh, this moment in time? There, there's certainly one line of argument that would support that: the fact that he was going after China with a, a potential trade war to perhaps try to scare them into uh, more heavily in sanction, uh, enforcing sanctions on North Korea, and the discussions of of the bloody no strike on North Korea. I think it's it's still a little bit too early to tell if that was really the the motivating factor for North Korea to return to the table. Uh, personally, I think it's a mix of factors. One thing I think that was not uh, in the mix was sanctions on placed directly on North Korea by the United States. Uh, North Korea, is, if you have been watching them, you know they, they're basically a large organized criminal organization where the money flows up and the consequences flow down. So the leadership is doing just fine financially, and their economy actually continues to grow. Uh, but you know the, the, the talk of the bloody nose, perhaps that was one of the reasons I tend to think that the, the Kim Jong-un re, uh, regime looked around, said, saw that it had a willing partner in South Korea, saw the, that it might be able to maybe take advantage of President uh, Trump in, in any kind of one-on-one meeting and decided now was the time to act. And uh, where, where would we put uh, the Olympics and, and what took place at the Olympics? What role did that play in getting us to where we are today? My my take on the Olympics is that there was a U.S. presence there, and I think that there were probably background negotiations that have yet to come to light between the United States and North Korea. Of course, Vice President Pence famously did not meet with the, the North Koreans while he was there, canceling an event just minutes before it was supposed to take place. But my guess is that there was some kind of background discussions there, and that was really going to lead up to this. There was also discussions between of the United States and South Korea about what it was going to do for military exercises scheduled for early April. And it was about that time that they decided that, number one, they were going to shorten their length, but also scale them down in hopes that this would then lead to further detente on the Korean Peninsula. Well, when we talked about the importance of that picture between the two leaders of North and South Korea, uh, one uh, picture uh, that was taken before that uh, was on the secret trip of Mike Pompeo, uh, then designate Secretary of State, now the Secretary of State, meeting with Kim Jong-un. I mean, that picture is a pretty remarkable picture of uh, uh, something happening that uh, basically, uh, this, this was something that was really kept a secret. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of speculation about what was actually said during that trip. There was, there was some, some belief that, that he may have presented Kim Jong-un with evidence that the United States was able to track Kim Jong-un in real time. Uh, bringing out satellite photos of him uh, as as he moved around the country, saying we have you tracked here, here, and here, and that had, that had really spooked Kim Jong Un into uh, into uh, being more forthright about being wanting to pursue 
a denuclearization. Again, that's all speculation. Uh, I, I really think that this is more about North Korea seeing two leaders that it believes it has the advantage in negotiating with and that it's going to move forward in trying to do so. And, you know, we have to keep in mind that thus far, North Korea hasn't made any concessions just yet, and yet it's, it's got a, a U.S. summit on its plate. When this summit takes place, and Donald Trump has said that if he doesn't like uh, the way things are being set up, he's not going to go, and if he doesn't like what's happening there, he's, he's going to leave. I mean, uh, th- that's, that's probably uh, vintage Donald Trump, but that sounds like a good negotiating tactic, does it not? It does sound like a good negotiating tactic, but one ultimately I think that he will not be uh, carrying out. You know, this is something that I think is going to play highly to Donald Trump's ego, the fact that every camera in the world essentially is going to be there covering this. And so the fact that Donald Trump is not going to show up, I think, is a bluff that he's not going to, to carry out. On the other side right now, you know, we know that the, the CIA continues to negotiate with North Korea, kind of hammer out what this summit is going to look like, what, is it, what it's going to talk about, and, and what exactly is going to be on the table. So I have, I have a feeling that North Korea is, is going to try to ensure that it walks a fine line between protecting its nuclear program, which it is not going to give up, and ensuring that Donald Trump remains at the table and the relationship remains cordial, because a war is the last thing that anyone wants on the Korean Peninsula, including when, North Korea. When Kim Jong-un talks about denuclearizing, what exactly do you think he means? Is his so definition a, the same as our definition? The definitions are definitely not the same. And in fact, what, what uh, the Kim regime is talking about is denuclearization, not only of North Korea, but an end to kind of the hostile policy of the United States. That means looking at U.S. troops in South Korea. That means perhaps ending the nuclear umbrella. Um, any number of things are going to be on the table there. But to North Korea, denuclearization does not mean denuclearization of North Korea. And you can look at that uh, in the language they use. What North Koreans actually say is, denuclearization of the North Korean Peninsula. That's something that's far different. It has a much broader meaning meaning in in terms of that. Doug Truax joins us. He's a graduate of West Point and a U.S. uh, military captain, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your question. Uh, Carl, do you think, you know, everybody's talking about the possibility that uh, he is definitely not going to to give in. He's not going to go to to denuclearization. Uh, This is all just a ploy. Um, I, I get that that's how I understand why people would think that because that's the path we've been on before. But what do you think the chances are now that that uh, he's actually got the calculus going that if if I don't get something done here, uh, Trump, Mattis, Pompeo, Bolton, uh, they're gearing up to come after me. So um, do you get the sense, though, that that's because there's a there's a question of what happens on the other side of this whole thing falling apart for Kim? Yeah, the, that calculus, I think, is certainly much higher than it was before. And we've heard talk about the Trump administration or putting together a war cabinet and perhaps being willing to actually carry out some kind of war on the Korean Peninsula. So you know, I, I take that point that the calculus for him is now much higher, but I, I don't think that North Korea is there yet. Uh, so they're going to try to walk a very fine line. Maybe they'll take steps that, that the United States is going to be happy with, you know, in the confirmation hearings with now Secretary of State Pompeo, he said that the point of this, these meetings, with upcoming meetings with Kim Jong-un, were to enhance American security. And so let's just say that let, perhaps North Korea gives up its ICBMs uh, and it no longer has the ability to hit 
the United States with a missile topped with a nuclear weapon. That would certainly be an enhancement of U.S. security and perhaps an, an agreement that the United States is willing to take. Of course, U.S. allies in Japan and South Korea are not going to be happy with that because it still leaves them in danger. But it does fit in with the, what, what the Trump administration has said is an America first foreign policy. Roberto Montano has a question for you. Hey, Carl, could you help us a little bit with the role that China's playing? Because when they cut off the coal exports, that seemed to put a lot of economic pressure on North Korea. And, you know, they, they don't really do joint exercises, and that's very odd for an ally. Um, and, you know, what is the message there that, that you're seeing in regards to their relationship? So one of the reasons they're not really doing joint exercises, of course, that would that could, those could come in two forms, either with troops or with the naval exercise. And obviously, on the naval the naval side, that's very tough for North Korea, with considering its limited uh, gasoline reserves and the fact that you know, it wouldn't even be able to be to really uh, carry those out under its its own, own power. So it would need huge Chinese uh, help to get that done anyway. But in terms of the actual sanctions enforcement, China has been doing things even beyond the U.N. Uh, sanctions that have been in place. So the, the initial thought was that when, when Kim went to Beijing to meet with Xi Jinping, they have now started to list some of those to allow for, for greater livelihood uh, loopholes, and so some money may be starting to flow back. So that is certainly a calculation for North Korea, but you know, getting China on board is now, I think, going to be tougher because they feel that they've been left out of these sanctions and I think they're end up going to, to be a roadblock rather than a help moving forward. Carl, we've got to pause for a moment. Carl Friedhoff is with us. Carl, can you stick with us for a few more minutes? Yeah, no problem. We will pause for a break and be back from Chicago. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us, our in-studio guests. They've got questions for Carl Friedhoff, who joins us. Uh, Carl on the phone. And, Carl, my question to you is, right at the moment, uh, has, has North Korea officially accepted that there's going to be a summit? So they haven't officially acknowledged that there's going to be a summit with the United States. As far as I know, they haven't announced that in their domestic press whatsoever. But that's not really all that unusual for them. In fact, I don't think they announced the the summit with with, uh, South Korea until the day it actually happened. But even that was a step forward. Generally, when they've done these summits in the past, the summits have, have taken place, and then it's only a day or two days later that it comes out. Um, of course, on, on our side, the United States has also not acknowledged or, or officially acknowledged any formal dates or, or anything like that, because behind the scenes, uh, the North Korean intelligence agencies are working with the CIA to hammer out what the agenda will be and where it's going to take place. And where it's going to take place is a, a thing of great speculation right now. What uh, would you narrow? Could you narrow it down to two or three places? I guess there was a question, uh, at least mentioned on one of the shows today that they've agreed on a time zone where they would meet? Oh, I, I hadn't actually seen that news. So uh, I was actually in Seoul for the past two weeks, and I've just returned to the U.S. I'm now uh, still, still not yet back to Chicago, so been out of the news cycle uh, uh-huh. a little bit. Um, what, I've, what I've heard is the narrow, place I've heard narrowed down to are Mongolia, Singapore, perhaps somewhere in, in Switzerland, 
and even Pyongyang might be on the table. All right, you said that you've, you've been in South Korea. What has been the reaction of the South Koreans uh, to this big news? Um, on a, are they all excited about it? Is there, are, they, are they fearing it? Uh, what, what's the, what is the man on the street in Seoul saying about this? So I'll give you two, two different views of this. Um, number one, if you look at the public opinion polling in South Korea, there was pretty great support for this summit taking place, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75%. Uh, percent. But that being said, when you look at whether or not the South Koreans actually trust North Korea on, on a lot of these issues about denuclearization, that trust is not there. So it's more of a, yes, let's, let's talk to North Korea because we realize it's a threat and we need to talk to them, and this is a, a better development than where we were six months ago. But this idea that Kim Jong-un is suddenly going to give up his weapons is not really accepted uh, by the South Koreans. And when I was there, I, on the morning of the summit, I was walking uh, over to one of the two TV studios located just right in the heart of Seoul, and essentially you couldn't even really tell that anything was going on. Uh, everyone was, was busy commuting. Of course, they were on their phones, but that's not necessarily indicative of them looking at news about South North Korea. But it was just a normal day. There were no real protesters. Sometimes the older conservatives come out uh, to protest the, the uh, more liberal government. That didn't really happen. And, you know, the day of the summit was really just like any normal day, except that on all the TVs it was covering the Kim Jong-un, Moon Jae-in summit. Uh, Josh Cantrell has a question for you. So, Carl, sort of following up from Bruce's point um, about the South Korean public, what do we know about how the North Korean public is reacting to this or if they're even aware uh, that, this, that these talks are going on? Right, so the North Korean public is now aware that through the official newspaper, the, the Rodong Shinmun, they did finally announce it. Uh, but what the North Korean public is, is or how it is reacting is, is, of course, something that we really won't know for quite some time. The way that information gets out of North Korea is often through family networks. Uh, there are some cell phones that are smuggled in, and people will then sneak off into remote areas to call out either to China or sometimes to South Korea, and then they'll pass information along about what is being talked about within the villages, within some of the smaller cities. Um, I suspect that there's going to be a lot of leeway. You know, they are, they're going to, the way this is going to be portrayed to them is that these the leaders from around the world, Moon Jae-in, Donald Trump, whoever it may be, Xi Jinping included, are now, are now ready to accept not only North Korea, but Kim Jong-un as, as a leader on the world stage and someone who is seeking world peace and perhaps even uh, coming to, to kind of pay homage to Kim Jong-un and ready to accept North Korea as a nuclear power. Salim Uwakil of In These Times has a question for you. Carl, um, in, in the latest news, Moon is, is telling, telling the, uh, the press that Kim has agreed to give up his nuclear weapons if he can extract a promise from the U.S. that they won't invade, that they won't um, engage in any kind of military action. Is there anything to that? Um, I, I don't personally believe there is. This is something that has the United States has said repeatedly to North Korea, you know, even going back as far as, as one of, the, I think, the first Bush administration in the early 90s. The United States has repeatedly said it has no intention of invading uh, North Korea. Of course, North Korea turns around and asks, well, what about Iraq? What about Libya? And okay. the U.S. Doesn't, doesn't really have good answers for that. And so this idea that, well, the U.S. is going to pledge to do this, you know, North Korea is kind of one of the ultimate real politic countries, and it's not so much interested in, in what uh, the United States is going to say, but more in what the United States has done in the past. So 
again, no, I, I don't think there's really anything to that. They're not looking for a pledge. Instead, you know, there's going to have to be something much more dramatic that is going to take place, I think, to, to turn North Korea's attitude and, and its uh, attachment to its nuclear weapons program. Since the world will be watching this summit whenever it takes place, one of the concerns I have, I mean, the president knows that the big deal here is the big photo op uh, that everybody's going to be looking for. They're going to be looking for a photo op with President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, I, can, I can understand, and I would be concerned that in any such thing that's put together, that the president of South Korea is somehow slighted or viewed as slighted uh, because uh, just the way that maybe each of the other two sides might, might view it. Mm-hmm. The, 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 to have him in that shot may not be as big a deal. I need 10-second answer. Your comment on that, Carl. So, you know, I'm not too, I'm not too worried about South Korea being feeling slighted out of this. This is something, you know, just a, an advisor to President Moon told me that they were looking to play out the role of broker. They want to get these two countries together because they know that this is, you know, slicing the Gordian knot. This is how this problem gets solved, if there is any solution at all. Right. Maybe all three get the Nobel Peace Prize. Wouldn't that be a, wouldn't that be a story? <laughs> Carl Friedheim, thank you very much for being with us. Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We will continue with another full hour of Beyond the Beltway, wherever you're listening. And again, if you've not gone to the Facebook page, you can become a Facebook friend tonight. And you can watch the show whenever you want. Back shortly. the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster when floodwaters reach your door when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood or an earthquake is destroying buildings or is the best time perhaps today during a disaster you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today don't wait communicate brought to you by fema and the ad council Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-799. 7096. That's 760 799 7096. 
or visit him online at BrianSellsTheDesert.com. Back in Chicago, we continue wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border, whether you're joining us on the Internet or joining us on POTUS uh, 124, the POTUS uh, channel on Sirius XM, or you're listening to one of America's great radio stations. Uh, it is uh, nice to have you with us this evening. This past week, just to kind of a personal, this past week I had uh, an opportunity to spend a lot of time in California with my, uh, with my grandchildren, and uh, I, I was driving around a lot, which is what you do when you're in California. And I had Sirius XM satellite radio, and... I was glued to POTUS uh, 124, and uh, yeah, f- obviously, if you're listening on POTUS 124 tonight, you know what a great channel it is, a very broad-based channel. Uh, and again, uh, if you haven't uh, subscribed, it may be something you want to give some consideration to. It's all politics all the time, the politics of the United States, a good balanced discussion, of, although they were, they were all wringing their hands about that the president was once again not going to the a correspondence dinner, and I just yawned. I said, nobody beyond the Beltway gives a rat's you-know-what yeah. if Donald Trump did not go. But he went uh, and gave his speech, just as he did last year, opposite the uh, the dinner. He gave his big speech and uh, revved up the crowd in, in, in Michigan. I want to talk about uh, some other issues that, that uh, uh, we've talked about foreign policy a lot uh, in, in uh, thus far, and I want to spend another segment on it. What it seems to me that the Iran deal, which also was discussed at length last week, allegedly with the leaders of, of Germany and France, trying to convince the president not to pull out, that the president is sending a song signal that he said during the campaign he wants to rip it up, thinks it's the worst deal ever. But what I'm wondering is, whatever he does or whatever the administration does with Iran and the Iran deal, is that going to be potentially viewed in a negative way by Kim Jong Un, is anybody going to believe? Is he going to believe us and believe our words if we make a deal with him and maybe we back away from a deal? Josh, I, I don't think so. Let's let's keep in mind what the Iran deal is and isn't. A lot of people and a lot of the media refers to the Iran deal as a treaty. It's not a treaty. It was never submitted to Congress because it wouldn't have gotten through Congress. In fact, I'm not even sure it's signed. It's a, uh, it, it went through the United Nations and the prior administration, the executive branch of the uh, prior administration embraced it. But it, never, it doesn't have the full force of law or a, a treaty in the United States. I think that by negotiating tough with, with Iran and, and trying to get changes to the deal, either to nix it or to fix it or to nix it, it sends a strong signal to North Korea that we're not going to play games when it comes to nuclear re- weapons and that we're serious about it. So I, I, I've heard people talk about the contradiction. I don't really see it happening. And frankly, as much as Macron and Merkel were trying to convince Trump to stay in the deal, we have to keep in mind that Pompeo and uh, Bolton are two uh, – Iran hawks who hate the deal as much as Trump does. Doug, your, your reaction? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's an important point. It's an executive agreement, and it never it never would have gotten through Congress because, you know, I've seen a lot of polling on this over time because the uh, super PAC that I run, we do a lot of different races around the country, and so we're always trying to feel where people are on this. 
still the American people know it's not a good idea to cut a deal with the number one state sponsor of terror. Nobody believes them. And so even when you look at the bad deal that it is and then you, you uh, overlay the fact that nobody trusts them, then it's like, you know, it's, it's like Josh was saying, you can't, you can't do anything with that other than that's why Trump was big on Rip It Up because what is the thing? It's not, it's not anything to, to even uh, put your hands around. Um, the U.S. is the only country that uh, dislikes the deal. Every other nation involved promotes it, says it's a good thing. It, it corrals Iran. It keeps them from exercising their nuclear ambitions. Um, everyone who looks at it says it's a very good, very good idea, the only, except for the U.S. and, of course, Israel, which is a, a country that very seldom gets mentioned in all of this. But Israel is the major reason why the U.S. is anti uh Iran. And when we talk about the state sponsor of terror, we're talking about Hezbollah. We're talking about Yemen. Those are two embattled nations. Well, Hezbollah is a group, but Yemen is an embattled nation by Saudi Arabia, which is an ally of this country, is bombing Yemen into the Stone Age. And the only protection Yemen has is Iran. And so to portray this as some sort of Iran as some sort of enemy uh, spreading terrorism around the world is completely erroneous. And I think the U.S. is the only country that is against this deal. And it's becoming pretty apparent that Trump is out of step with the rest of the world. Roberto, do you agree with that I, assessment? I, th- I think um, Iran is uh, key to murdering hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. Uh, there's no reason to think that they're going to be rational tomorrow. Uh, we're basically fighting a proxy battle with Iran right now. And so, to me, the, the Iranians are not good-faith actors. And so, you know, I, I don't often agree with the president, but I, the, the same problem that we have with the Koreans, which is a deficit of trust, we, we have to have with the Iranians. Um, but you disagree with Salim. <laughs> we, we disagree respectfully, oh, okay. yeah, on this. And then the, the reason why is because Definitely. I think Iran is doing horrible, despicable things, and we have to hold them accountable, and I'm okay being hawkish because of Sir, that. Syria is, and one of the things that's amazing to me as well is this country is against the Assad regime. The Assad regime in Syria is the guarantor of, of the minor, of minority religions, the minority groups in, in Syria, which are embattled by a, an imperialistic Sunni uh, jihadi army that's invading Syria, trying to take away its pluralistic traditions, and yet we are against Assad, who's trying to uh, uh, uphold the pluralism that this country represents. Well, with it's the Kurds, that. that way? No, no, not at all. Of yeah. course you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think you know. Uh, this all started. I always said that if we had a no-fly zone in Syria in 2011, uh, we would have. This, this solved a lot of a lot of problems. You know, it's it's a total mess now. But it is. A, it, I think it's a proxy battle. We got to be careful about what we do. Uh, but to say that uh, Hezbollah and Hamas are not terrorist organizations... That I didn't say Hamas now. I said Hezbollah. Uh, no. And that's who Iran is supporting. Well, right. And, and they, they support a lot of terrorists, and, and they have a lot of blood on their hands from American troops and IEDs. And so... so um, and then the leaders of Iran said, uh, you brought up Israel, which I think is a great point. The leaders of Iran said, hey, we got a nuclear weapon. Get those guys off the map, you know? And if you can't negotiate Chinese. with somebody... You can't negotiate with somebody whose starting point with you is that you're, you're dead. And so it puts the Israelis in a very clear position. See, that's if it, disingenuous. If it, if it wasn't for us, there would be a major uh, argument. Because you know that when Iran talks about Israel being off the map, they're not talking about Israel and the people of Israel. They're, they're talking about a Zionist regime. 
in their words, that's who they're talking about. They're not talking about so white how, how, how do we know that? Well, because all you have to do is be serious about your research in, in, into what, the, what their statements are. All you have to do is lose the blinders that the West puts over your eyes, and you know that. You, you listen to what Iran has been saying. You understand the context in which all of this is taking place. You understand why um, Iran is very suspicious of the United States, which has um, con- continuously been opponents to, to their progress. You understand all of that. If you, if you were uh, more serious about trying to find out. Well, well I, I am serious, and I can tell you I, I've visited Israel 15 times in my life, and I've been in the region. But when a country denies the Holocaust and then threatens to wipe the only Jewish state off the map, I think we ought to take them seriously. We've got to pause, 1-800-723-8029. We'll pick up on that point and also take some calls when we return from Chicago, wherever you're listening, from coast to coast and border to border, and now around the world on the World Wide Web. I'm Bruce Dumont from Chicago. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood or an earthquake is destroying buildings. Or is the best time, perhaps, today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. I had no idea how hard it would be and what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and ways for me to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics, but also information about the hurdles I was facing. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
from Chicago. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we're picking up on our conversation. Go ahead, Salim, because during the break there was a good uh, discussion going on uh, with some pet topics that you have. Go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying that I think that there seems to be an unreasonable kind of animosity um, about uh, exhibited uh, about this this deal, uh, this Iranian deal. I don't see, I don't see what's so evil about it. Um, it seems to me to, to make sense in many ways. Not only does it um, does it rein in Iran's nuclear ambitions, but it also provides a, a, an avenue for better relations down the road, and that's what we're all striving for, right? So I don't see why there's so, so much animosity. So, so I. I think the problem, and as we discussed during the break, the issue that the Iran deal opponents like myself have with it is this, is that you free up over $100 billion in cash to um, – that, that is theirs. Well, I, I don't they know They already have that. it, though, don't they? Well, that's the problem. We freed it up as part of the deal. Right. And in return, all we got is – a 10-year freeze on their nuclear program. And so it's the, but the sunset point, but, but the point. But the point is, if, if we tear it up now, they already have the money. That is a problem. So, I, I, I agree with So for with there, you. I mean, we, we got the money and... Well, they, they got all the I mean, money. what do they, they gain if, all, they, if they... They, go, they get all the money mm-hmm. and, and, and we back out of the deal. But they've already got the money. They're not going to return the money. Which is why I think the focus should be on fixing the deal and trying to address the sunset provisions. And uh, if that can be done, I think we'll all breathe uh, a, a sigh of relief. But I think Trump is right to test it and try to renegotiate it. We saw last week, we saw two nations, the leaders of two nations, get together, cross over the border, shake hands, hug, have a press conference. Are we ever going to see that picture in the Middle East? Will mm. we ever see it in the Middle East in anybody's lifetime? I think it's possible, man. You know, when I saw Sadat and Begin do that, um, that raised my hopes. Um, and, and what about when he was assassinated? Yeah, that, 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 that lowered my hopes. hopes? <laughs> right. But, I mean, I think it's possible. It's always a struggle, man. It's always a struggle. Um, we, have, we have the, the, uh, the momentum of, of the, this negative history. It's always a struggle to, to surmount that. But Go ahead. The, the problem is when we had this, uh, the, the, the Arab Spring, Assad did not take it well. He was not open to democracy, and he he he, he clamped down, and, and he he just started murdering people. And you can't blame the United States hegemony or any of that. He decided to be a hardliner, and now we have half a million people dead. There are sectarian pressures in the Middle East that are much stronger than I think we realize. Assad is fighting a battle against a, a resurgent jihadist movement that is causing problems throughout that region, throughout the Levant. Research, not just ISIS, um, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda. That was the beginning of it. I mean, there were many, many, and there are many that... handled that. that. No, no, we haven't handled it. It's still a problem in the, in the Islamic Kurds. world. His concern world. is the Kurds. We're, gentlemen, we're going to take a call. Let's go to Tom listening to us on WPIC. He's listening in Youngstown, or are you listening in Sharon, Pennsylvania? I'm listening. Uh, I'm living uh, in the Youngstown area, but I'm, I'm hearing off of WPIC. Oh, very good. That's in, uh, yeah, that's in Sharon, Pennsylvania. Nice to hear from you tonight. You know, Bruce, I, I got to tell you that as far as North Korea and, and South Korea is concerned, um, this is deja vu all over again. Um, they uh, were talking about a, a reunification in 1972. I'm looking at a, a 2001 almanac with a picture of the then president of South Korea in North Korea, the capital of North Korea, 
with uh, the President Kim's father with their hands up in the air and uh, smiles on their faces and their hands oh, yeah. clenched together. And, and they were, they were going to redo the map. They were going to redo the map at that time. Well, and, and, you know, my concern is this, that, that I, I think that China is going to end up being the winner out of this because, uh, you know, at, at worst what happens as far as the Chinese are concerned and as really to a certain extent North Korea is concerned mm-hmm. is that they wait out Trump, which is uh, three and a half years, maybe uh, 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 two and a half years, rather, uh, or, or four, uh, you know, uh, the end of Six two and terms. And, a half. And, and, and the Months. point being that uh, they've got somebody else to deal with then. But but here's the thing. Even if they reunite, we're not going to have a democracy in North Korea. It's going to be like China or Vietnam, where, where it is a uh, dictatorship, a communist country that has capitalism. And they're going to get their capitalism source from the wealth of South Korea. Roberto's, and, and Roberto's, that, that got, Roberto's got a comment for you, Tom. Tom, I don't know if you, it says in the quote in that almanac, but... His father, Kim, Kim Jong-un's father, said, if I lose this fight, I will destroy the earth. Uh, keep, he didn't say I'm going to exclude China or Russia. He said I will destroy the earth because what good is an earth without North Korea? <laughs> like this is a philosophy that's been passed down. On, and, and, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, well, my point is this. Yeah, we, we, all, I'm, all I'm saying is, is that for the people that think, you know, this is a great thing, I, I think China's going to be the winner because we're going to end up uh, getting, having our footprint smaller in that uh, area of the world, which is what benefits China. Um, I think they're going to have the assets of South Korea to uh, further expand a uh, totalitarian state of North Korea. And if you look at the history of South Korean government, it's been very unstable. In fact, it was just a few, a few years ago where the uh, then uh, uh, president was uh, impeached and removed from office. And, and that was after, yep. in, the, in the 60s, they had a, they had a coup. Uh, there was a dictatorship in there for about uh, eight, 18 years. Uh, there was an assassination of that person by the head of the CIA. I mean, you know, we don't, we're not dealing with a very stable situation in the South to begin with. And, and you know, I, I understand what you're saying, sir. And, and yeah, the, the, the choices aren't good for us. But as I say, I really think we shouldn't be too gleeful about this because I really think in the end, um, you know, China's going to be the winner, and we're going to get nothing out of it after 65 years and a lot of lives. Josh has, a got, a, Josh has got a comment, and then we're going to move on. Josh? I just want to go back to history as well, to uh, a parallel or a similar situation, and that is back in the mid-'80s when Reagan and Gorbachev were talking, and their first summits were disasters, and everyone was really negative about it, and uh, that, that we were going to end up in a worse place. And you know what? They got it done. They amazingly got it done. So I think and who's that in there now, Putin. Well, but it's still better well, than. Well, no, you're glossing over the fact that we've got Putin in there, and and, and the the you know the, our optimistic uh, ideas of having the whole Soviet Union broken up and democracy in that part of the world, uh, it hasn't happened. In fact, uh, we're we're. we're but, 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 but our kids forward. aren't spending uh, going through school drills, going into nuclear bunkers. So, I mean, it is a better situation in terms of the relations it's less between bad. the two countries. Yeah. Hawaii it's went through bad. it. Though. And that's but the only point I'm trying to get across. Disrupting our elections. <laughs> they're still there. Well, Tom said something about it being less bad. Yeah, and I think, less that, bad. I think that that's right. I think that's, that's right. what you have to work with sometimes. And yeah. I do think, and I, I understand where Tom's coming from, but 
with this whole North Korea piece, at the very least, if we can get to a place where they don't have their ICBMs, <laughs> and and and, yeah. and well, hey, we we got to try to get there, happen. and maybe that's what Trump is. Pompeo like, told him. I'd like to hear from some Korean War veterans that may be listening to the broadcast this evening. Get your reaction about uh, what's what what is uh, maybe about to take place uh, in the Korean pen- Peninsula, and also the role that uh, the China, because China has been sort of out of the picture, at least in a publicity uh, sense, for the last couple of weeks. But they're 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 not out of the picture; they can't be. Too close to uh, too close to Korea, uh, North Korea. Listen, Tom. Thanks very much for your call. We appreciate yes, sir, it. Bruce, thank you. One eight hundred seven two three eighty twenty nine. Other parts of the world that uh, that the president has to to deal with. I mean, at the moment, uh, the one of the big issues is the one that's closest to us, and that is the the continued issues with Mexico and to what extent. Uh, Mexico is going to be assisting the United States. They're not going to be assisting in building the wall. Uh, but again, uh, do, you, do you see some semblance on the part of the Mexican government to, uh, to, to assist in reducing the number of people from Mexico coming to the United States? Is that in their best interest or their worst interest, Roberto? You know, migration is... Uh, if, if my friends at Cato would say we should have free movement of labor and capital. So... Yeah, I have a lot of friends at Cato. Oh. Um, they're great, good, good people. <laughs> so anyway, the the uh, you know, but personally, I think that America has more than enough capacity to to bring in that human capital and and have it be productive. I think the concerns that are are raised sometimes by our more conservative uh, friends here are that these people are going to come and they're going to freeload and. Ultimately, the immigrant story is a positive story. They start small businesses at a higher rate. They're industrious. They pay taxes. They, 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 they're, they're, when they do have some criminal activity, it's at a much lower rate. So in general, America benefits when it brings people in. As for Mexico, Mexico— I'm going to stop for just one second. Sure. I want to get uh, Salim's <laughs> reaction to that assessment of immigrants and whether or not— Again, those people that call your shows, the African-Americans that are regular listeners to you and been following you in, in these times for all these years, do they agree with that assessment? That uh, Some do and some don't. Um, I generally um, debate many who call because they have differing ideas. They, they look at immigrants as, as competitors, as economic competitors, right. especially in the lower economic uh, strata. And, and that is um, something that I have to continuously uh, debate because uh, there, are, there are folks who are, who are quite insistent that, that that is the case. That it, What it, do you it, tell them? Well, I, you know, I, I generally take a, a larger view. I, I take a, an ideological view. I say that, well, you know, we, 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 why should we become allies with, with the empire that completely um, uh, dispossessed these people of their land and then brought in enslaved people to help farm this land? Why should we ally ourselves with the same people who did that? Uh, so I'm, I'm taking that, that longer view um, when I try to make this When we this, come back, uh, I want to talk more about that and also about, uh, the, again, future relations with uh, uh, Mexico and also DACA. Is it ever coming back and what might it look like when it does come back? 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border and around the world. And now tonight live on Facebook. Don't go away. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look. 
an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Back. We are back on the air in Roberto uh, during the. Tell everybody what you just said. <laughs> All right. I'm serious. Oh, fine. Well, the question we were just throwing about casually well, what does Kim really want here? And I said, Kim Jong Un. And, and the first thing that I said was, well, he wants to have those sanctions lifted. And then we kind of. And but ultimately, the real intention, in my opinion, is he wants the unification to happen under his terms. And if that happens at the point of a nuclear gun, then so be it. He'll need until 2030 to have that kind of firepower. Once he has 10 nukes, there's about 3 million people dead on each one of those. Another 10 million significantly almost dead off of that. That's enough for him to have a mutually assured destruction against anybody. And you know what? You don't need an ICBM. You can put that into a shipping container. And we are not going to trade San Francisco for Seoul when he has that kind of firepower. That's why it's urgent that we deal with it now. Well, President Trump might trade San Francisco for Seoul. San <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Francisco only. Right? They can hit California. Well, that's 55. can't have that because Nancy Pelosi is going to have the gavel. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> one thing that was uh, being uh, shouted uh, at, the, at the rally last mm. night was uh, no bell, no bell, no bell, because people have been talking about whether or not if the president ha- can have his fingerprints all over uh, what's happening in Korea that – you know, maybe he should get a Nobel Peace Prize for actually doing something as opposed to Barack Obama that just showed up. But my question to you is, and I, I asked uh, Carl sure. this, I was going out, if that were to happen, wouldn't that be shared with three people? Wouldn't that be? Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't Kim, and, and, and let, me, let me give you a different scenario. If President Trump and President Moon and Kim Jong-un all shared a Nobel Peace Prize, that would certainly bring Kim Jong-un into the brotherhood of world leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Give him stature. Let me finish my point. Sure, sure, sure. Give sure. him stature. He's invited. Maybe he's invited to Washington at some point. Maybe he's invited to Paris. He goes around. Maybe he could be seduced by that power. And maybe in the next 30 or 40 years, he doesn't want to do any of the things that you're talking about. He, as long as he is in control... And no one's going to nuke him, and no one's going to assassinate him. Hey, he's cut a very good deal, and and he is welcomed, albeit he may be the turd in the punch bowl at an international party. For a while, maybe he will be viewed in high acclaim. Everybody's reaction. I saw smiles from our Republicans. I want a reaction from everybody on that scenario. So Mm. so first of all, it wouldn't be three-party. It would be six-party, right? Because it was Korea, north north and south. It was Japan. It was the U.S., China. And so it would be six six people getting the share, and and that's probably not going to happen. But I I don't think that that dear leader of North Korea is the ultimate, you know, leader. He's got an entire cadre of elites, and they'd all have to benefit. I mean, frankly, what I think is happening in North Korea is they're running out of money. 
the Chinese. Now let's stick to my scenario. Sure. I'm going I'm to go, Josh. You were smiling as I, I as I articulated my uh, strategy. Look, I, I think not it, my strategy uh, again. Not my, uh, I'm not suggesting this. Uh, again, floating a plan. I, I, I want to go back to history, and everyone was cynical with Reagan and Gorbachev, but yet they got it done, and. I, I want to be optimistic about this, but there's also points in history that could lead us to pessimism. Look, Arafat, Rabin, Shimon Peres shared a Nobel Prize back in 93, 94. That didn't work out so well. So, um, but, but again, perhaps because he wants prestige, it could work this time. So, so yeah, I, I, I think so. Arafat gained some prestige. Sadat gained prestige. Once they are welcome into the fraternity of leadership, of, of world leadership, I think they changed their positions a little bit. And North Korea is looking for an out. Just, I mean, and they have a, they have a legitimate ideological um, model in, in China, which has transformed its society in many ways. And North Korea probably sees that as a, as a route uh, to, 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 to bettering the conditions of its people. Doug, is that too bizarre a scenario that I painted? Um, I don't. If it happened, I wouldn't be okay with it. I just think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I think about there's, what, 26 million North Koreans living in the dark, and their growth is stunted because they're starving. And I don't know. I just so could, you, I couldn't, I couldn't so imagine that guy being a world leader and what the rest of them. Then you don't think he changes. I don't, I don't so see So what's it. happening now, it, it's all... It's it's looking for a better bargaining chip. Is that, I is think that so. what's happening in yeah. the last? And, week? and I, th- I think it's so bad, inducing people to yeah. think that he's not crazy. I think I think that there's some he's of that. Crazy. I, well, I don't, think, I don't think he's crazy. I think it's crazy. a little. It's getting to be an all or nothing yeah. because if 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 that were to start to happen, the problem he's got is that the once the curtains come off that place, I think the world is going to be even more appalled than we are right now right. with the little bit that we know. Right. So yeah, I'm wondering also, for, uh, getting back to sort of the. You know the Democratic Party and what they're going to be doing. I mean, if uh, if this thing is pulled off, mm-hmm. and even those who don't like Donald Trump at least acknowledge that maybe he had something to do with it. Of course, he I did. don't know how anybody could totally deny. Of course, he but did. there are people in your party yeah. that could, Roberto. You're yeah. not. You're you're yeah. you're, you're a they're more of a moderate already. Democrat. They're doing it now. They're denying his his role. Look, he right. he sent the CIA director over there. He added more pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. he absolutely had a role. He's the president of the United States of America. That you can't discount that. You know. Now is he? But wait a minute. A lot in your party do dismiss they that. Do. They're in the resistance. I mean, you, you, you're, you're a moderate Democrat. But, I mean, there's, there's people out there that, that, that would think that this, that this guy is horrible. Julia Klein has been here for the last couple of weeks. I, I mean, she, She's horrible. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. She, she's a great guest. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's horrible in her denunciation yeah. of the president. She, I mean, he, he could cure cancer, and it wouldn't be good enough for her. Look, obviously, he gets some credit. And if, if anybody is that stuck to ideology, I'd ask them to revisit their, their patriotism because it's, it's not about the party. It's about our country. And so you that, want to have a debate about patriotism at the Democratic Convention? Well, they, you know, they, they, they would say, they, they say, you're a former I, member of the Black Panther Party. We should mention that. Well, they, I think they, it's the first time in the history of the show we've had a former member of the Black Panther Party and a West Point graduate. Oh, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the first time. No, no, we've been on the show together before. Yeah, we have okay, been. Well, that's good. Yeah, we we had nice conversations okay, afterwards. Okay, so here too. we go. Oh, no, we, we, we bring we, people together. Here. <laughs> we have much in common. Um, but no, no, I, I think um, 
no, what was what, see? I forgot. I forgot. Yeah, no, you, the, the question was a, a discussion of patriotism. I, I guess let me ask a, a more pointed question. I'm saying we're patriots. How is how is the Democratic Party going to find a national candidate for president of the United States that's going to be able to stand up and and basically tear down at least as we know at this very moment. Some of the foreign oh. policy oh. successes, oh. Yeah, successes of the Trump this? administration. No, I was saying, I, I've already had this debate. Yeah, uh, we, we've uh, talked about this already. Name we, the person. No, I, I'm on my show. A, a guy called and said yeah. um, he, he was trying to say that Trump really had nothing to do with this. I mean, it was all it was all Moon, Moon and Kim who, who sure. figured it out. Big part. And, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, and Trump was really only a minor character. Give him ten percent, twenty percent credit. Yeah, I mean, he's part of the part but of the I, equation. But I think his bellicosity. Uh, I think that that kind of uh, sure. set the mood. I think uh, once once Kim uh, Kim understood that that Trump was was uh, was going to you know stand this ground. Um, someone that, to fear. Someone will be feared. Barack yeah, Obama yeah. Wasn't Maximum yeah. leverage so. works when you are dealing with someone that is coming out of a Leninist model. They don't understand soft power. So when they see hard power, they, okay, I recognize that. I'm not going to be crushed well, I wouldn't go that, that far, but uh, I, I do. I do think that that's So why are what, still yeah. so many people shocked when he uses the rhetoric he uses? That's, I mean, first of all, first of all, he's a New Yorker. That's the way he talked during the campaign. Nobody thought that he was going to change. I mean, he's. I, I, I've referred to this as, as, as sort of the Ryan Duran, and, and you know, old people of my age, you'll remember the great relief pitcher of the New York Yankees, Ryan Duran. He's one of the first guys to throw, you know, hundred mile an hour fastball. He was a relief pitcher. He had glasses like an inch thick. The first two or three warm up pitches, they were in the screen. They were like all over the place. Nobody wanted to dig in against this guy. I think that's what we have with Donald Trump. Mm. I mean, no, nobody wants to really dig in because if they dig in, I mean, he's going to hand them their lunch at least rhetorically, and they. But, but that's, he's but that's, cra- that's he too. By the way, I said that Kim Jong Un was crazy like a fox. Yeah. Donald Trump is crazy like a fox. And, and, and everybody's to, scared of him. But there's to no. Some extent. Go ahead. Go ahead. But, but but to Bruce's point, the the co- the constant expectation that Trump is going to change is just crazy. I mean, the media keeps thinking he's going to change. When is he going to act more presidential? My never Trump friends. My never-Trump Republican friends keep telling me, you know, I'll support him if he starts acting presidential. You know what? He's not. And the truth of the matter is, is, is it's working for him. That's boring. Results. And, and it's results that matter. We're in an era of peace and prosperity and a booming economy, but he, he, they won't give him the credit because of Russia. Well, not because of that. Uh, because, Russia. No, we'll not because of that. If, if it weren't Russia, you it would be something you can't else. Just count and, and eight it, years of Barack Obama's economic. He saved True. General Motors, right? Yeah. And we just we just With lost our money. We just lost Ford. <laughs> right. There's no more Ford except you for can, two vehicles. You, but you can discount eight years of weakness on the foreign uh, foreign affairs. I agree. The strategic patience was not going to work against someone like the red line yeah. was not going to work. But, but in terms what do we of, want to talk about? But, but to ask your earlier question, well, we're going to run on domestic policy. Well, actually, um, Trump is taking uh, Obama's lead when it comes to, the, to that red line issue. I mean, Tr- right. Obama used Putin uh, to help him uh, get, yeah. get, uh, to keep Syria off, off the uh, docket. Right. And, and Trump is, is trying to do the same well, thing. Reaction. Oh, well, I think that, um, like what we were saying a minute ago, the, the, the results are what matter. And, I, and I, you know, we, we get into this place where the economy strong. And uh, the world is not 
as on fire as it was when Obama was doing what he was doing or not doing what he was doing as we went along. Um, you can't argue with it. And I know we're political watchers and we get into all this. There's a lot of people in the middle that don't. They check in and they see what's going on and they're thinking, I don't know. seems like it's going okay. Economy's good. North Korea's hopefully getting figured out. Um, maybe the media's got it wrong. And I, and I think that it's, you know, the media, um, it, if- it's getting obvious that they're – They've been in, they, they picked their side right, with this Obama, collusion, and now they're going against Trump all the time. Is so. this collusion thing? Uh, go, it's not going anywhere. It's, it's over. Don't forget about Mueller. It's over. It's over. It's over. Trump is, boom, it's, it's over. Don't forget about Mueller. Okay. Yeah. There's no There's no collusion. There's no collusion. Never was. Never was. Bruce Dumont, thanks for joining us tonight. We're not done yet. See you in a few minutes. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Bruce Dumont, thanks very much for joining us tonight. Uh, in our last segment of the show, I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit earlier in the program, uh, and that is uh, the the reliance that the Democratic Party has on African Americans, on Hispanics. They also have a large number of us very strong in the gay community and in the, sure. in the progressive female community, women's community. Not all women, but again, so they start any president election, you know, with with a much a much with a much more solid base than I think the Republicans. It's obviously a different base. Mm -hmm. But a question that I have for our Democratic colleagues, because I asked the question um, in 2020 and in every year after that, every four years after that, is there going to have to be either an African-American or a Hispanic on that ticket? And you both said yes. So my question is this. Which Which of those two minorities... Within the Democratic Party, which one is going to have the leg up to be on that ticket, either as president or vice president, or would you see a ticket made up of two minorities? What's going to be going on between the Mm. blacks and the Hispanics in the Democratic Party to see who's going to have the most clout in 2020? Now, you were talking about Luis Gutierrez. Give us your scenario of Luis, and then I want to hear what's going to happen in the, in the African-American community. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that you can be Latino and African-American. That's right. Yes. And, and you know, ask my Dominican friends about that, mm-hmm. and they, they get down pretty good with some cumbia. Mm-hmm. And they're as African-American as, as, as can be, right? So we but have a lot. Historically, politically in this town, there has been, there generally has been a split between the black vote and the Hispanic vote. They don't always, they, they may, maybe historically and rationally, they should all be together, but you know, Salim, that isn't the case, or we would have had Mayor Chewy Garcia, and we don't. 
True. But when you look at the wards and the districts and the, and the states as they're cut, in 2020, we're going to have a census. 2021, we'll do new maps. 2022, we're going to have a whole new political equation. And at that time, you're going to see young folks that are going to reach across that chasm. Because I got, a friend of mine is committeeman in the 20th Ward, and he speaks Spanish. Um, you know, there's an alderman who speaks Polish, and he's Latino. So you're going to go where the votes are. Um, if you want to represent Chinatown, you probably want to pick up some But what Mandarin. about on the national perspective? What, what, what's going to happen with who are the players that are out there who are African-American and who are Hispanic? They're each going to try to get votes from the other constituency. But when it comes right down to it, someone's going to have to make a deal. Someone's going to be on that ticket. Is someone going to say there's going to be no Caucasian on the ticket? No. Is someone going to say that? No. Why not? Because Why not? That, we don't have a litmus test on race. So you're saying that a Caucasian white guy... Like Kasich? ...has just as much... Are you talking about Kasich of the Democratic Party? I mean, I think, I think he's a, a Republican that a lot of Democrats would have voted for. If you want to look at a Latino that's influence... Why he, that's why he did so poorly in the Republican primary. I understand that. <laughs> but you're asking about the Democrats, right? We could have gotten around... He, he, we could have, he would have absolutely beaten Trump. But like, t- look at the Beto O'Rourke in, in, in El Paso, Texas, right? Running against... Uh, I think he's going to win Texas... For Senate, when he gets Ted Cruz, that gentleman has got it figured out. Mm. He is doing a multicultural approach, and whether you're African American or if maybe you're in California, you're doing you're doing Asian American. You're going to have to be more than just one tribe. What is what is happening in the in the national Democratic field involving African Americans that's going to that's going to Dude. say to the black constituency? We're the ones that need to be on that ticket, either in the number one spot or number two spot. And the Hispanics, you're going to have to wait. Who's going there's to say there's that? a great discussion now about that that very issue. I think if uh, I don't think it will be an ethnic exclusionary kind of scenario. I think it will be uh, simply demanding that the candidate respond to the issues that are important to these various com- communities. I think that if, if, if a white candidate is explicitly dedicated to issues that African Americans think are important, uh, then he will, he will or she will get, gain the support of the African American community. But I think the, the issue will be uh, um, a much more explicit uh, you know, devotion to issues that are important to African Americans. And it's more about money than it is about race. It's more about socioeconomics. From my standpoint, and again, I don't have the inside scoop of the Democratic uh, thought process because I'm a Republican, but what we see is a party that seems to have gone over the edge on or overdose on identity politics. And Mark Lilla, who's a left-leaning columnist, very smart, has written quite eloquently on this issue. And it's and I just wonder what your view of, of that – Do do you feel like well, you, you guys need to dial that back a little bit? I, I think that some of, some, of that, um, some of that criticism is a bit off base because the ultimate identity politics is, is white, uh, white American identity politics. And until that is factored into the equation, I, I think that uh, simply criticizing uh, an identity politics focus is, is missing the point. I think it's How really, does that, oh, go ahead, Doug. I, think it was, I don't know. I think it's really obvious with the Kanye thing. You know, and that other rapper that said, you don't have to, if you're black, that doesn't mean you have to be a Democrat. Chance, you true. Know? And so, so that's where, I, that's where um, I'm with Josh, and I, I, wanna, I want a healthy two-party uh, system. But, uh, 
if it turns into, well, you have to vote this way because this is your skin color, on the Republican side, we're much more like, hey, what do you want for policy? Yeah. See, the, le- the legacy. And a strong, uh, a strong uh, The American uh, legacy that makes identity politics world, necessary is that black people are only here because of identity politics. It was our identity that allowed us to be enslaved. And so that identity has been the, per- the, the, the very focus of our, of our presence in this country. And so identity politics is, is absolutely inherent to our political aspiration. Absolutely inherent. We have, we have just touched the surface of a story that we'll talk about for a long, long time. Salim, Roberto, Josh, and uh, Dave, thanks, Doug, thank Doug. Thanks very much for being with us tonight. I'm Bruce Dumont. Our thanks to Fritz Goldman and to Dan Dorfman and to Sam Greenberg for their assistance in the production of this program. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster when floodwaters reach your door when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood or an earthquake is destroying buildings or is the best time perhaps today during a disaster you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today don't wait communicate brought to you by fema and the ad council Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com.